0: This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hanson with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and today we're talking about the ongoing crisis in Lebanon. The explosion that decimated much of Beirut in early August put a spotlight on Lebanon. But the country of nearly 7 million people was suffering from massive problems long before the explosion. Decades of financial mismanagement and political corruption have caused the worst economic crisis in the country since Lebanon's 1975 to 1990 civil war. Somewhere between 50 to 75 percent of the population is living under the poverty line. Widespread food insecurity threatens even the wealthiest Lebanese, and the local currency has lost 70 to 80 percent of its value. Last fall, Widespread political protests brought down a government and sparked hope for meaningful political change that failed to materialize. Further, the government's resignation after the explosion occurs when critical public services are needed not only to respond to the aftermath of the explosion, but also to deal with the ongoing battle with COVID-19. Before resigning, Lebanon's foreign minister called the country, quote, a failed state a grave diagnosis for a small country in a volatile region. Are there more hopeful pathways forward for Lebanon? And if so, what are they? To help us understand what's going on, I am joined by Maha Yaya. She is the senior director at the Carnegie Middle East Center, where she researches political reform in the Middle East. And she joins us now from Beirut. Welcome to Deep Dish, Maha.
1: Yes, thank you.
0: Also joining us in this conversation is Emil Okayem, who is the Senior Fellow for Middle East Security at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, where he researches regional politics, security, and non-state actors. He's joining our conversation from London. Welcome, Emil. It's great to have you here as well. Thank you very much for having me. So, Emil, I want to start with you and have you paint a picture of the society in Lebanon. Who lives in Lebanon? What are the important cleavages in society that drive the situation there?
2: Well, Lebanon has a, a very diverse population, um, diverse in every possible uh, way. Uh, there are up to 18 uh, religious sects that live around uh uh many Lebanese are western oriented uh, but also Asian oriented so there's a, a real mix in terms of uh, of culture in terms of orientation um it's it's a small population uh, but uh, that grew because of the addition over centuries of uh, migrants from across the region and more recently uh, refugees from Palestine from Syria, um, and so it, it, it uh, adds up to a, a very uh, lively, messy country. But on top of all this, uh, there is a political structure that organizes society and a political structure that is uh, shaped by, primarily by a, a, a sectarianism, a, a power-sharing formula uh, uh, among the major sects of the country, uh, which uh, basically distributes uh, institutional, but also informal power uh, between them, and it's that political system that is today the target of uh, massive criticism, political protest, and is um, the the engine for the institutional corruption and mismanagement that has led to uh, the most recent crisis. Uh, most. Uh, you know, spectacularly, uh, the horrific blast that uh, that took place in Beirut on on August four. So you have the, this mix of a, a rigid political system atop a quite diverse and and vibrant society, and that's the tension that needs to be resolved right now.
0: So Maha, I want to bring you in to help us understand more about this political system and the power sharing arrangement that evolved and was part of the settlement to end the Civil War in 1990. What are the major elements of this system and what was the original logic for why this was seen as either a good idea or necessary in order to bring the Civil War to an end?
1: The original logic for this power sharing arrangement was to make sure that, you no, know, as, as Emil described, Lebanon is, has at least 18 officially recognized religious sects. So the idea was to make sure that not any one anyone, religious community feels that it is being left out somehow and that they all have a say in decision making to some extent. Um, this initially began with when Lebanon was under French mandate, i.e., post World War One. Um, this was a French idea. Uh, Lebanon was created at that particular moment in time. Um, And the idea was to create a power sharing that would allow different religious communities um, to occupy the key positions in government, i.e. the president would always be a Christian Maronite, the Speaker of Parliament would always be a Muslim Shia, and the Prime Minister would always be a Muslim Sunni. Initially, the ratio was six Christians to five Muslims. At the end of the civil war in 1990, there was the Ta'if Agreement. This was adjusted where you would hire, it was more equal. You would hire six Muslims to six Christians. Again, that was modified because it, the, the, Lebanon, the, the primary impetus, if you want, uh, if you look at the, first, the declaration of the first Council of Ministers, In that declaration, they talk about dropping this power sharing, this system that is based on sectarian identity and moving towards a civic state. Fast forward, we're still where we were when Lebanon first got independence. In 1990, the political settlement that ended the civil war uh, was based on the idea, as I said, making it more equitable, but also uh, it drew a roadmap. That uh, in time would allow Lebanon to move out of this power sharing that is based on identity towards this more civic approach to the state, and this this basically entailed the election of a parliament, uh, not that would not on the basis of identity. In other words, parliamentarians would be elected on the basis of their qualifications and not on the basis of their uh, sectarian identity but that a Senate of religious leaders would be created in parallel, and this would allow all the religious groups to feel that they have a say in any kind of strategic uh, policy that is about to be implemented. Unfortunately, in the post-1990 era, uh, that didn't happen. And what happened was, Uh, the Senate was never implemented, and actually sectarianism became embedded further and further. It became a tool for the political leadership, most of whom were uh, heads of militias, warlords uh, that took part in the 15-year civil war and who just moved into state institutions as part, again, of this political settlement. They used this power sharing as a way to uh, both... uh, 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 increase their own power to use state institutions as a vehicle for uh, granting favors to constituents, uh, building up networks of uh, clientelism, patronage, etc., to the point where even if you want to appoint a doorkeeper in any of the ministry, it now applies to the logic of equitable sharing between the Christians and Muslims. According to the Constitution, it should only stay at level one, at at kind of the first level of civil service. Um, Over the past 20 years, it's actually seeped down to every single level of decision-making in the country.
0: And Emil, could you connect this to the economic situation that we're in today? How has this patronage system and this political deal ended up affecting the economy and and society more generally?
2: Well, uh, the, the political system is in many ways directly responsible for Uh, the dire economic situation of Lebanon these days. I mean, the Lebanese economic model is fundamentally flawed in the sense that at least in the past 30 years, Um, The the strategy uh, uh, adopted uh, to rebuild the country after the civil war uh, has not uh, prioritized uh, the the, the establishment of a productive economy, but rather has focused on, on real estate, on the banking sector, which grew massively, uh, on, uh, on remittances from uh, Lebanese abroad who live in the Gulf States, in, in, in Europe, in the US, and Canada and elsewhere. Um, so in a way, the reconstruction, um, instead of um, uh, uh, leading to a healthy economy, has actually uh, uh, exacerbated and added new layers, very, very problematic layers to the economy. And this edifice is unraveling right now. There's another aspect to that which is that the Lebanese political class um all those politicians are essentially predators. Um uh, they they look at the state and they look at the economy as a, as a sources of rent, as sources of of income that they should capture uh so that they can enrich themselves but also can redistribute to their own constituencies to solidify their power. And because of the power-sharing agreement uh, that Maha just described, um, essentially everyone is uh, implicated in this uh, capture of the state and of the economy. And so all the major political leaders essentially agree on, uh, you know, how to share the spoils. Um, So, you know... uh, Specific ministries or, or state agencies and, uh, uh, or businesses, etc., are allocated to uh, specific sects or individuals. Um, and it makes for a corrupt, incompetent bureaucracy—the one that oversees, for instance, the economy—and we saw that with uh, with the port in Beirut. Uh, it it also means that major businessmen, major businesses in in general, uh, seek to please their political patrons. Um, and, and reinforce their powers to, you know, obtain the licenses and to conduct the business they want and to uh, get uh, taxes and custom duties lifted, etc. So the economy itself has actually facilitated the entrenchment of the political elites, rather than create uh, a or and sustain and lift uh, people into a middle class that then in, in uh, can. Challenge the, the the political elite. There is another aspect to this, uh, which is the the financial system, and this is uh, at the heart of today's uh, predicament for Lebanon. What has happened in the past uh, twenty years is that uh, Lebanon essentially pegged its currency to the dollar. Um, you know, every dollar was fixed at fifteen hundred liras. Um, and that provided a level of stability in the banking system that allowed the bank, banking system to grow. But, but this uh, required a, a constant, uh, uh, a continuous flow of dollars into the country. At a time where Lebanon was importing a lot and exporting very little. So you had a, a, a commercial deficit, and in parallel, you had a, a growing uh, fiscal deficit because the state was badly mismanaged. Primarily, the energy sector, which cost Lebanon, you know, up to one point five to two billion dollars a year, uh, and what and never produced the amount of electricity uh, that Lebanon uh, needed. Uh, so the country was essentially bleeding money. And so what happened essentially is that the central bank. Uh, in, in, uh, in combination with the, with the state, sucked uh, all the dollars uh, from the banks uh, and rewarded uh, uh, these with high, uh, uh, high interest rates. So for a long time, it seemed like Lebanon and Lebanese banks were doing quite well. Well, actually, what was happening is a very similar to Ponzi scheme. Some people say it was a Ponzi scheme. And so the state accumulated losses, the central bank accumulated losses, and the banks had essentially uh, financed uh, uh, those, uh, 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 which had financed the operations of the central bank and the state, uh, found themselves with with no money left. So this is why, for instance, today uh, people's savings uh, in Lebanon are trapped in banks. Banks uh, are so worried uh, that they will be uh, run on them that they have limited uh, illegally uh, how much uh, uh, money people can actually withdraw from uh, uh, from their bank accounts. At the same time, the central bank was no longer able to defend the lira at 1,500 lira to a dollar. So um, they let the lira float in a very, um, you know, uh, I'm not sure if Maha would agree with that word, disorganized, but willfully disorganized way. There are several exchange rates in Lebanon today, um, and uh, which basically meant that the economy uh, nosedived very rapidly. I mean, Lebanon was suffering from serious economic problems for the past decade. Um, It's not just because of what I described. There there were other pressures on the the country, Uh, for example, uh, you know, inflows of refugees. But of course, this was offset in part uh, thanks to uh, foreign donations, but they also suffered from for instance from uh, uh, lower oil prices in the Gulf states, which in turn affected remittances from Lebanese uh, 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 professionals and workers in these countries who could no longer send the same amount of money home so in a way it, it was in a way the, the the perfect storm. everything that could go bad went bad, and it went bad very quickly. Although, and I'm sure Maha would agree on that, the seeds have been of, of this, this economic and financial demise had been planted long time ago. And in fact, the Lebanese, knowingly or not, were living under an illusion that the economy was somehow decoupled from regional problems, for, from uh, the international policy and political disarray, and from you know, other dynamics. So the Lebanese celebrated for a long time, and foreigners did so as well, um, their own so-called resilience. Uh, and now we realize that Lebanon is not immune to the laws of economics. Um, you know, uh, the country is going through an unpre- unprecedented uh, uh, crisis that is affecting uh, uh, the entirety of the economy. And just to end on this, uh, Maha recently wrote a piece on on the collapsing uh, uh, four Uh, pillars of the Lebanese system. Uh, The last one has not collapsed, and I will give her a chance to tell us which one it is and whether that's reason for hope. But she basically um, and eloquently explained that Lebanon as a mercantile uh, 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 country, one that depends on trade, on finance, and so on, um, is, is a thing of the past.
0: And, Maha, let me bring you into this discussion because not only has the economy collapsed, but even before the explosion, public support for this system, which, as we've been talking about, had been eroding for quite some time, burst into protests on the street last fall. Can you help us understand kind of what is the nature of those protests and who is it directed against? Is it organized still within sex or what's the nature of the backlash against the system?
1: I very much agree, actually, with Emil's analysis of the economic situation. To be start with that. But um, in terms of the protests, the protests actually were against all the political leadership. Um the 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 anger and the sense of discontent the sense of growing grievances in Lebanon had been accumulating over, I would say, almost the past decade. But as uh, service delivery on multiple fronts started collapsing, uh, corruption was increasing, or at least perceptions of corruption were increasing dramatically. Uh, Economically, it was very clear that there was a lot of bizarre things happening on the economic front. Um, The governance of the country was... Becoming more and more bottlenecked, if you like. I mean, the, the if if we just go back a few years earlier, the country remained without a president for two years as the political parties uh, negotiated amongst each other to come to an agreement to compromise president. Um, and le- literally, they were playing the game of blink with the country. After that, the country remained without a government for eight months until everyone acquiesced to the demands of one of the political parties, that their son-in-law be in, the, in, in government. So these these were already building up. The demonstrations that erupted in October 2019 were remarkable for a number of reasons. One is they were widespread. In other words, they took place across the country And against every single political leadership, without question, um, from the furthest village in the south to the furthest village in the north, there were protests. Um, They were very spontaneous. In the past, many of the protests would take place in the major cities, primarily Beirut and maybe a bit more in Tripoli. Um, This was remarkable for how widespread it was, Uh, both in terms of geographic location, but also in terms of size. It really did take the political class by surprise. The motto became, everyone means everyone, Um, and it really meant that, um, I think for the first time, many Lebanese had come to the realization that this sectarian power-sharing system that they you know, and which allowed their political leadership, political slash leadership to consolidate their hold over state institutions was actually failing and that no one had gained out of the sectarian power sharing system. No one had gained except for the political leadership. In other words, it was an an equal opportunity abuse situation where the political leadership abused the rest of the population. Um, the majority of Lebanese had really gained very little and actually were gaining very little out of the system. One can argue that many did gain in terms of chops and in terms of uh, favours, etc. Yes, it did touch some Lebanese in that way, but the capacity of the system to continue to deliver in this way uh, had been considerably eroded. In part, this is because in the post-assassination, the 2005 assassination of Prime Minister Hariri, uh, new political actors came into the scene. uh, And so the demands on the system grew. Uh, More political parties were trying to siphon off um, money uh, finances to use state institutions as tools of patronage. So the load became too much, and this golden goose, which is the state, just could no longer deliver. It didn't. I mean, the the economic situation was was collapsing. State institutions had become dysfunctional, and everybody was losing at that point. So in that sense, the the uh, the protest are really about everybody and not about a specific leader. The question here is then what next? Uh, and I think this has been the biggest challenge for the people who have been on the streets. Um, I mean, there are there is the structural challenge of having to deal with an econ- a country in the midst of an economic collapse. In December, we were saying that the country was staring into the abyss. Today, Lebanon is in the abyss. This is a country that has lost, where people have lost uh, almost, you know, they've lost their jobs, hundreds, and thousands, hundreds of thousands have lost their jobs, thousands and thousands, of businesses have closed. The purchasing power of Lebanese has been lost, I mean, the, the Lebanese lira has lost close to 70% of its value to the dollar which means that people's purchasing power has also decreased by an equal amount. More than 50% of the population is now living below the poverty line. There are serious concerns about famine or people going hungry, not famine, but people going hungry in Lebanon. This is unprecedented. And then you add to it the calamity of the pandemic and the lockdown measures associated. On Friday, it's about to go down into lockdown again, to go into lockdown again. Um, which means people will be staying at home, Small businesses will have to close. And then you add on top of that uh, uh, a catastrophic explosion, which epitomizes for most people this horrific, I mean, A, it epitomizes the criminal neglect and disregard that this political leadership has for the Lebanese, but also this marriage of convenience between a corrupt political class and a corrupt business class. The fact that you would allow almost 3,000 tons of uh, ammonium nitrate to languish in a port, which is in the heart of the city, Beirut grew around the port, this isn't some remote location, for almost six years, and then despite repeated warnings, keep it in the port, to end up with a catastrophic explosion uh, of, similar to what we saw two weeks ago in Beirut that has affected almost 50% of the city, um, that where 300,000 people are now homeless, uh, more than 6,000 have been injured, and almost 200 killed. And I won't even talk about the damages to businesses, job uh, employment, etc., all of this to say, the country today is literally collapsing. The piece that Emil was referring to, I'd written this almost like two weeks before the explosion, and it was about how the four, uh, four out of the five key pillars in Lebanon were collapsing. Um, the political, uh, the political settlement, the power-sharing uh, arrangement, was in doubt. The Lebanon was built, as Emil described, on a kind of merchant republic uh, model, i.e., an economy that was based on banking and services. That is now no more. Lebanon is no more the Switzerland of the Middle East, famed for its uh, banking secrecy, etc. Uh, the third pillar, which is the uh, issue of uh, freedoms, the fundamental freedoms. Um, is there's a lot of clampdown today, uh, a lot of human rights abuses, a lot of clampdown on the right to freedom of speech, but also freedom of assembly. Actually, at this point, Lebanon is under a state of emergency, which gives the army broad-reaching powers to grab anybody off the street or even from their homes. Uh, And it gives military courts uh, a kind of privilege over civilian courts. And then the fourth pillar is the middle class. The middle class has been completely eroded, and they're the ones that are swelling the ranks of the poor right now uh, because of the uh, currency devaluation. The fifth pillar is security and the army, and this is where we are now. We have to wait and see how things will develop on that.
0: So this is a really dire situation as you both have been developing it here. And in terms of that question, what comes next? Emil, in a recent Twitter intervention, a thread that, that you created, you focused and called out Hezbollah both as having unique responsibility for for the dysfunction, not that lots of folks have not participated in it, as we've just laid out. But you said, if you really want to understand what's going on, you've got to be able to pull out the role Hezbollah has played. And implied in that is that Hezbollah is part of the key to being able to move forward and get beyond this point. Uh, What did you have in mind there?
2: Well, let me be clear. Um Even if they weren't Hezbollah, given the political system that we have and the economic model that we have in Lebanon, there would still be a lot of corruption, mismanagement and so on. But what I'm trying to say is the following. Every political actor in Lebanon, or at least those a part of the ruling elite, um, has an interest in a weak state. As I said, and as Maha also uh, uh, reaffirmed, uh, they're essentially predators. But they all operate within that system. Hezbollah is unique in the sense that it operates within the Lebanese system, but also above the system. And what I mean by this is that Hezbollah, as a powerful militia with regional ambitions, with a regional sponsor, Iran, uh, with uh, you know a, a, a very confrontational agenda, has. Made uh, has has really poisoned Lebanon's relations with its traditional partners, Uh you know the, the the countries that provided most of the foreign direct investment into the country, most of the employment for the Lebanese diaspora, uh, you know. So basically, Western countries, Gulf states, etc. It also has kept Lebanon in a uh, a, a situation of you know uh, either war or or waiting for the next war. Um, so there's a there is a real cost to that uh you know there's obviously a human economic and and uh, cost to and political cost to to the wars that hezbollah has been involved in uh, especially the 2006 one um, but there's also the fact that you know hezbollah cannot allow a a strong state to emerge in lebanon because a strong state would infringe on its uh, uh, strategic and and operational autonomy as a powerfully armed non state actor uh, making its own decisions on on war and peace, and so yes, I I do uh, 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 I do emphasize Hezbollah responsibility in, in, in all this. Uh, I just wanted to reiterate. When uh, demonstrators me, uh, uh, say "Kellon meaning everyone in the ruling class is responsible, um, they mean it, and I certainly, uh, you know, adhere to that to that slogan. But then what I'm trying to say is that some are are particularly responsible uh, for this. And there's another aspect to that, which is that, and and it's it's a it's a question that essentially haunts me and other reformists in the country, which is. Do you push for a, and I want to be clear about this, a negotiated disarmament of Hezbollah before political reforms? Or do you push for political reforms first and then hope that over time Hezbollah will will resign? Or do you have to pursue both uh, uh, objectives at the same time? And that's a daunting thing for Lebanon to do. I mean, you were talking about confronting an established ruling elite that uh, has used uh, state resources, intimidation, and so on to safeguard its own uh, position, at the same time as Hezbollah, which yesterday was indirectly found to be involved in the assassination of Rafiq Hariri, the former prime minister. Yesterday's verdict uh, uh, found a, a key Hezbollah operative, Salim Ayash, uh, found him guilty uh, of uh, having organized and conducted uh, the assassination of, of uh, prime minister, former prime minister Hariri in 2005. So we're talking about the situation in which a specific group, you know, although they're all corrupt in this country and, you know, I want to reiterate the point, but a specific group has used for the first time since the 1990 war, uh, uh, violence, uh, uh, coercion against rivals. And that mean, uh, and Harri may not have been the only victim. There were a string of uh, 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 political assassinations and attacks since 2004 up until uh, uh, you know a few years back that targeted a number of anti-Hezbollah uh, uh, or anti-Assad uh, 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 political figures, journalists and, and others. And so, uh, you know, that's the atmosphere of uh, intimidation uh, in which, uh, um, under which, Uh, political protesters, uh, but uh, political activists, uh, but also Hezbollah's rivals are operating. And in this context, it's very difficult to see how one pushes for a comprehensive agenda of political reform uh, that includes the dismantlement of this power-sharing structure uh, that is based on sectarianism and and deals within the elites um, to, to its conclusion. Um, and so, you know, again, I want to emphasize that what uh, uh, the Lebanese people are up against is uh, is just absolutely massive. Uh, and Hezbollah is a key part of that structure. The other point that I want to make here is that... Very often when we talk about Hezbollah from, from abroad, uh, you know, we look at it, I mean, many Westerners uh, look, at, look at it as a, a you know, terrorist organization or purely militia. It is a political movement in Lebanon that's extremely popular uh, with a, a, a significant uh, 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 political representation in parliament uh, and a base, etc. So often we think that Hezbollah somehow wants to controls or wants to dominate the system. Not really. Hezbollah itself, want, again, wants to, play itself, uh, wants to place itself above the system. It actually looks down on Lebanese politics, but it doesn't want the Lebanese politics to be a constraint on its strategic behavior. Hezbollah wants to uh, uh, um, preserve its armed status. It wants to preserve its strategic autonomy and operational autonomy, which are largely linked to Iran's security and strategic preferences in the region, and wants to have a veto on security and foreign policy. It's not an outright domination of the political system, but it's enough to paralyze it and to alienate uh, Lebanon's traditional partners and funders. Uh, And it's enough to uh, uh, make sure that Lebanon uh, will, you know, remain ostracized uh, at the moment of, you know, of uh, existential angst in the country, you know, will Lebanon be able to make a deal with the IMF? That's a big question. Well, will there be conditionalities in terms of of Hezbollah uh, for IMF shareholders, not the IMF itself in terms of an institution, but others may want To uh, 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 use this uh, to restrain uh, uh, Hezbollah. So, you know, it is at the heart of the dilemmas. It's not uh, uh, that Lebanon is facing. It's not the only one, but it's at the heart. And finally, Hezbollah doesn't have today a single solution to Lebanon's many predicaments. Hezbollah Cannot you know? Is, cannot secure the kind of funding that Lebanon needs to dig itself out of this financial hole we're in. Hezbollah cannot do reconstruction the way it's needed at the port and elsewhere. Uh, Hezbollah is not able to stabilize the economic situation and jumpstart the economy so that Lebanese citizens who have just lo- lost their jobs uh, 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 can can find work again. All this is going to depend on. Integrating Lebanon again into the global economy. And that means bringing back Western Gulf investment, uh, stabilizing our banking sector, and so on. So that's the point I'm trying to make as well, is that Hezbollah is not a solution to any of the problems we're facing right now.
0: Deep Dish listeners, I want to take a quick break from today's episode to remind you that the Chicago Council on Global Affairs relies on contributions and donations from listeners like you in order to produce Deep Dish and help people understand the most important issues facing our world. If you're enjoying Deep Dish, I'd ask you to consider supporting our podcast by going to our website, thechicagocouncil.org slash supportdeepdish. That's thechicagocouncil.org slash supportdeepdish. Thank you for your support. So, Maha, as you look at this situation, and we've talked about your analysis of four of the five pillars of stability in Lebanon uh, falling apart or being undermined. What do you see as the hopeful path forward or the key dilemma that needs to be uh, addressed in order to have a brighter future for the country?
1: I think, we, I mean, just to pick up where Emil left off, I think we're looking at two different levels of paths forward. There is the issue of Hezbollah and the broader question of U.S.-Iranian tensions, Iran-Gulf tensions, uh, and what that means for Lebanon. The, the relationship between Hezbollah and Iran has really placed Lebanon in the eye of the storm. On that front, and that is not something that the Lebanese themselves can resolve. This is going to be part of a larger regional political settlement uh, that pushes in the one way or the other. What the Lebanese can do for themselves is elsewhere. Uh, And I think this is where there is some onus on the protest movements um, that have been, you know, people have been on the streets since October. There's now a move to try and organize some of this. Much of it was spontaneous, uh, a lot of them are social movements, as we've seen in other places. They don't believe in hierarchy. They don't believe in institutional organizations. There's a growing recognition that actually, no, institutions are important and political parties are important. And actually, politics is, is not a dirty word. Politics is a noble cause if <laughs> if one does it in the way it needs to be done. Uh, when when it's not about corruption, but it's actually about serving the broader public. There is now a move to try and create coalitions, to try and create political parties amongst the various protest movements. It's challenging, but there are several initiatives in, you know, in, in the making right now to try and create at least broad platforms that bring different groups together and that also prepare some for running in the in the future parliamentary elections. The second place where I think um, there can be some consistent pressure is the, uh, on the formation of a transitional government. Today, in Lebanon, uh, the current government has already resigned as of last week under pressure from the street and following the, the, the catastrophic explosion in the port of Beirut um and yet the president has not called for the mandatory consultations to name a new prime minister Pri- primarily that is because they are in the process of negotiating who this new prime minister will be what people on the street are demanding is a transitional government that is made up of independents people who are, do not owe their allegiance to the different political parties and who have the capacity the integrity the credibility to uh, put together an economic rescue plan for the country uh, and be able to move forward on that front and negotiate a deal with the IMF and the international community. Such a cabinet would need to earn the trust of the Lebanese citizens but also of the international community. Um, This transitional government really would be tasked with only two things the economic rescue plan, and preparing for uh, new the new parliamentary elections. Right now, parliamentary elections are meant to take place in 2022. The idea would be to bring them forward by, by a year, and they would take place in 2021. This is incredibly important, because if you want to create a, a, a change in the current governance system, the only way you do it in a democracy is through voting. You have to remain within the bounds of the constitution and the processes of the country. So the idea is with early parliamentary elections, the hope is that by that time, uh, there will be a sufficient number of candidates uh, from the protest movements, uh, from the new political parties, the different nation political parties that are emerging who would be ready to run in these elections. Um, This doesn't mean that the current political parties will disappear or fade into the background, but the hope is that at least uh, a percentage of parliament will have new faces. Um, If these people get elected again, then this is it, Lebanese have chosen. But the idea is that with parliamentary elections, we would be able to push for new faces, and then you would... That would then bring you to the third step, which is changing the uh, the president of the republic. That would be Kanda. Of. Other than that, uh, I don't see a way out. Now, the only way this will function, this will happen, is if the international community is able to uh, pull the political parties uh, together and negotiate a deal with, between them. The biggest challenge that any government will have, whether transitional or not transitional, is its capacity to implement anything. You can have the best ministers and they will not be able to implement anything unless there is some sort of consensus by the political parties to allow them to work. This will only happen if they recognize that, frankly, there is no other choice. They either agree to pull away a little bit And allow the country to breathe, which means they're going to have to let go of some of the institutions, as Emil described, that they've got their fingers in. There needs to be electricity reform, which means that the current political party that is controlling the electricity portfolio is going to lose that particular uh, golden goose. Uh, and others will have to lose other 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 uh, state institutions. They've got to recognize that there has to be, they need to pay and they they, they need to pay a part of the losses. Uh, and this is the way. It's by letting go of institutions and allowing the state to function as a state again and not just as you know, uh, somehow a war dividend, if you like. Um, so that, that, that's the only way I, I see forward. I, I don't see any other way.
0: So with the way forward and a great deal for us to pay attention to here, I want to thank you, Maha Yaya of the Carnegie Middle East Center in Beirut and Emil Okayam of the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London for coming on Deep Dish and sharing your insights today. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for tuning into this episode. Looking for more Deep Dish in your week? Please tap the subscribe button in your podcast app so you can get each and every new episode as it's released. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would enjoy today's episode, please tap share and send it to them as well. As a reminder, the opinions you heard belong to the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. This episode is produced by Molly Meyer, edited by Andy Zarnacki, and coordinated by Kira Dari. I'm your host, Brian Hanson, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.